But I'm now going to hand over to uh, Reverend Mark Woods, who's editor at the Bible Society. We go back a very long way, and uh, it's lovely to have you with us. So let's welcome Mark to us. Thanks, Andrew. And um, it's just lovely to be back here. I always enjoy coming to Harrow, actually. So thank you very much for the invitation. Um, and um, uh, it's just so nice to be able to meet in person as well, isn't it? I mean, Zoom and uh, what have you, uh, all the online stuff is great. But uh, there is just something about being together which is better, frankly. So, yeah, that's just great. Um, I, I'll just say as well that I, I think um, I'm actually a, a good person to choose to come and speak to you in this week of prayer for Christian unity. Um, not, please hear me here, not because I'm claiming to be a brilliant speaker or anything like that, but just because of who I work for. Um, I am the editor at Bible Society, and Bible Society is uh, one of the oldest Christian agencies in this country. It was founded in 1804, and it was founded to be deliberately ecumenical. And we work with Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants. And uh, our president is Archbishop Angelos of the Coptic Orthodox Church. And uh, the Bible is what all of us Christians have in common. And I like to think that we really do live out ecumenism in who we are and in what we do. So the service this morning is obviously based around um, the journey of the Magi, the coming of the Magi to the Christ child. And um, you're going to think uh, in some of what I say that uh, Andrew and I sat down together before the service and we very carefully coordinated what we were going to say and it was all, you know, well, it wasn't like that, frankly. Um, you don't know me so well, but if you knew me, you would know that I'm not an organized person, so uh, Andrew is, I'm sure, but it wasn't like that. Let me just tell you a story, though, about the Magi. And uh, this is actually in the journal, uh, The Travels of Marco Polo, the famous uh, 13th century merchant, the Venetian explorer who traveled all the way along the Silk Road to China, and uh, he wrote about his, uh, his experiences. And Marco Polo writes about how on the way he found a tribe who were fire worshippers. And they told a story about the Magi. There were three of these Magi, and when they found the Christ child, they went in to see him one by one. And first of all, Melchior went in to see the child Jesus. And he saw him as an old, white-bearded man, and he came out. And then Balthazar went in to see the Christ child. And Balthazar saw him as a middle-aged black man. Balthazar came out. And then Caspar went in to see him. And Caspar saw him as a young, fair-haired man with a blonde beard. And Caspar came out. And then they all went in to see him together. And when they went in to see him together, they saw him as he was. Now, it's only a legend, but sometimes legends are sort of true. When we go into Jesus by ourselves, we tend to see somebody who looks pretty much like us. And it's when we go in together that we have a truer picture 
It's when we go in with somebody whose skin is a different color, or whose gender is different, or whose accent is different, a different age, who believes different things, somebody who has perhaps different loyalties. And that does not mean pretending that we are not different. It is so not that. If you're here and you're an Anglican or a Catholic or a Methodist or a Baptist, then be an Anglican or a Catholic or a Methodist or a Baptist. Don't try and be somebody that you're not. And Christian unity is not about watering down what we believe. It's about finding that common place to stand in the presence of Christ and finding that he looks different from the way that, he thought, that we thought he did. Somebody said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and that's true. But today, the ground is level at the foot of the cradle. Well, that story is not in the Bible, which, um, you know, is kind of a shame, really, isn't it? I think it's a great story. So you might say that the sermon proper begins here. And uh, I want to talk about Magi and Menace and Magic. That's quite an old-fashioned sort of Baptist kind of uh, sermon, really. Firstly, Magi. And I'm sure that most of you have heard sermons, lots of sermons about the Magi before, and um, uh, it was retold in duck form a little bit earlier. And uh, so you know that they, they, you know, there's no reason to think that they were kings. They may or may not have been three of them. And uh, that Jesus probably wasn't a baby when they arrived. He might even have been a toddler. And you might have been told that uh, they might have been Zoroastrians, astrologers perhaps, and uh, that they were advisors and counselors to kings. And uh, I'm sure all of that is true, and I don't need to, to go through that again. But what interests me is not so much who they were or where they came from, but what they signify, why the story is there. So it's not so much where they're from or, or what they did for a living or anything like that. It's what they mean. And there's a marvelous depth of symbolism here. Because we're told that they came from the east, and the east was where Israel's enemies had come from. The east was where Babylonia and Persia were. East was where the Jews had been exiled. East was a place of pagan gods and pagan wisdom. East was a place of wealth and power. East was where it rivaled Rome in terms of power. And it's not just wise men, however many they were and whatever their names. It's not just the wise men coming and bowing down in submission to the infant Jesus. It's a whole world. It's a whole culture. It's a whole civilization. And there's always the danger with these Christmas stories that we kind of sentimentalize them. We, we romanticize them. But this is not a, a sentimental story. This is a, a political story. This is a, a philosophical story, if you like. Uh, and the gold and frankincense and myrrh were not actually gifts for a, a king and a priest and a sacrifice. That's an interpretation, a very ancient interpretation. 
But in the Scripture story itself, it's a tribute. These things are tributes paid by the lesser to the greater. And so here he is, this small child with a runny nose, probably his bottom still needed wiping, you know, all of that. Staying with relatives in a home not even his own, with none of the trappings of first century greatness at all. He's just a village boy. And a whole world came and bowed down before him. There's a a wonderful poem by G.K. Chesterton that captures some of the wonder of that. And the last verse says, The Christ child stood at Mary's knee. His hair was like a crown, and all the flowers looked up at him, and all the stars looked down. And you, you just get this sense of all of creation waiting and watching and totally focused on this small boy. And that was the scale, that was the size of what was happening at that moment. And the Magi were not looking down at a child as adults, particularly important adults, tend to do to children. The Magi were looking up at God. Now why why labour this point? Well, for one thing, because it's always worth saying, but for another thing, we are in, I think, a particular cultural moment just now, where Christian confidence in the church and in the scriptures is not strong. A lot of congregations are really struggling because of COVID, and I don't know, maybe you found that here. Certainly in my home Baptist church in, uh, in Lecampton in Cheltenham, we have really struggled during COVID, and there's been a kind of flatness, and there's been a, si- a sense of when will it end, when are we coming out of this, what lies ahead of us, and it's been really hard. There is a movement away from organized Christianity. It's not easy to make the intellectual and the emotional case for faith in today's world. Now, I don't think this is new, and I don't think that we should be uniquely worried about it either. You know, you might look back to the days of the early church when everything was new and fresh and exciting. I was very struck by something that Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said not long ago. Uh, He said, for all we know, we may be the early church. So just think about that. That that gives you a bit of of, um, uh, scale, doesn't it, to to think about these things. And G.K. Chesterton, who I quoted earlier in the poem, was a a keen student of church history. And uh, he also said, at least five times the faith has, to all appearance, gone to the dogs. And in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. So, you know, don't, don't worry. Don't worry too much. These are, these are not easy times, particularly in Europe. In the rest of the world, it's a different story. But we worship the Lord of heaven, who came to earth as a vulnerable child, in whom was the very nature and essence of God. And before whom one day every knee shall bow 
and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So yes, think, and yes, pray and work. But don't worry, be confident. The Magi bowed down in worship. Jesus is Lord, and he always has been, and he always will be. So my first point was about Magi. The second is about menace. And I said earlier that we mustn't sentimentalize the story, and uh, I know we often do. We, we turn it into the sermonical equipment, uh, equivalent of a Christmas card. But it ends with the slaughter of the innocents. And we don't very often hear sermons on that. I think when I was a pastor that I only ever once preached on it, which is a rather shameful record, actually. Jesus was born into a, a loving family which was at the mercy of the whims of a tyrant, like every other family in that time. King Herod was a smiling monster. There's another poet, Charles Causley, who wrote about this. Who is the smiling stranger with hair as white as gin? What is he doing with the children? And who could have let him in? There's that sense of menace. And the world is not sweet and kind and lovely. The world is dangerous. And surely we know that. Surely we are aware of the darkness of the world into which Christ came as a light bringer. There are so many sad stories around us. You know, little children suffering and dying, wars in faraway places, people who can't afford to heat their homes, and that's only going to get worse, people reliant on food banks to keep themselves and their families fed. What is that about in one of the richest countries in the world? Desperate migrants, bewildered politicians who do not have the answers. And our text this morning was chosen by the churches of the Middle East who know that Jerusalem, the city of peace, and Bethlehem, the birthplace of the Messiah, are not at all peaceful now. And they warn that Christians are being driven from the Holy Land and that the menace of nationalism and intolerance is a real threat to God's people there today. And Jesus became an asylum seeker. He and his family ran for their lives in the face of Herod's soldiers, and they found shelter in a strange land. And I wonder if we can see their faces in the migrants fleeing across Europe today, perhaps pitching up on the shores of Calais, hoping desperately for a boat. And I wonder if you're sitting there thinking, well, yes, but that's, that's different, isn't it? Because Jesus and his family weren't economic migrants, you know, they were running for their lives. It's not the same thing at all. And fine, that's true. Of course it's true. But let me ask you, why are you sitting there thinking, looking for ways that first century asylum seekers are different from asylum seekers today rather than ways that they are the same. I can say these things. I'm a visitor. You know, you don't have to invite me back. It's okay. The world was menacing then. 
It's menacing now. What should our response to menace be? You know, the time I did preach on the, uh, the slaughter of the innocents was a, at an evening service after Christmas, and my mum and dad were in the congregation, and mum said to me afterwards, well, that was rather gloomy, Mark, wasn't it? And, um, you know, that's the last thing I want to be. That's the last thing any of us should want to be. Remember Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus came to fulfill. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And it's the light of Christ that we celebrate in a world that does sometimes seem pretty dark. And it is victory over everything that menaces that we preach and that we believe. It's the emptiness of the tomb that fills us with hope. So in the face of menace, be a light bringer. In the face of menace, have hope. And that leads to my last point. You won't remember everything I say, I, I know, but you might remember magi and menace and magic. And I say magic, which comes from the same word as magi, actually. Uh, and I say magic because of the star and how we envisage it behaving. In Matthew's story, it guides the magi straight to Jesus and it stops over the place where the child lay. And that is very odd behavior for a star, to put it mildly. We can imagine perhaps the Magi as astrologers, as star watchers who read patterns in the skies. And maybe we can think that, that, that God, you know, he might have aligned the planets in a way that spoke to them in a language that they could understand. And we can sort of go along with that. We can sort of understand that. But a star that stops above a particular house you know, like one of those magic lanterns. Have you ever used those? You, you light a candle in the bottom, a tea light thing in the bottom, and, and it fills with air and it goes floating off across the, uh, across the sky. It's absolutely wonderful. Was it something like that that they saw? Because if they did that, you know, to us, that is just another level of weirdness, isn't it? But what was in Matthew's mind? If you read the story through the eyes of a first century Jew... It was, well, certainly peculiar, but not as weird as all that. Because in their thinking, stars were not just balls of flaming gas. They were angelic beings who moved across the sky in a great dance as part of their worship of God, worshiping God in the heavens as we do upon the earth. And Matthew writes of one of these angels leading the Magi to the house where Jesus was. If you aren't too old to read children's books, and um, I'm not, I do, have a look at The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. There are a couple of former stars in that book. Uh, if it's on your shelves, you'll all go back and look at it, I'm sure. And if you ask me what we might have seen if we'd been there with a camera, I have no idea. But I think this is the language that Matthew is using an angelic guide, rather than just an astronomical one. And what is an angel but a messenger? What is an angel but a messenger? That's what the word meant. If you wanted to send somebody to the shops for a pint of milk, you would send an angelos, a messenger. 
And who are God's messengers today but you and me? Think of it. I'm looking out at a congregation of angels. Is that how you think of yourselves? Probably not. But that is what you are. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And before his ascension, he told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's where the church's missionary drive comes from. We are his messengers. We are his angels. But isn't it interesting that he says, I am sending you as the Father has sent me. Because the Father sent Jesus to do wonderful things. And that, that's in John's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter 4, he's in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So what does good news for the poor look like today? What does freedom for the prisoners look like today? What does it look like to live in the year of the Lord's favor? Well, these are questions to answer, and we might come to different conclusions. We aren't all going to think alike. We aren't all going to vote for the same political party. But a Christian is somebody who wants to change the world and bring sight to the blind and set the oppressed free, because as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And the Spirit fire that burned in Jesus has to burn in us as well. We are not passive in the face of these things. We want to change them. And if you think, well, this is far too big for me. I can't possibly make a difference here. Well, of course you can, because you are an angel. And angels in the power of God can do anything. Even the least of angels is still an angel. And in what you say and do, and just as importantly, in who you are, the good news of God reconciling the world to himself is preached. The magic of the star is one thing. The magic of the messengers is even more magical. So when the Magi came to Jesus, it was a whole world falling at his feet. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. In a menacing world, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Christ has overcome the world. Light is stronger than darkness. And that magical star was an angelic messenger. So go out and be an angel. Be an angel. And live the gospel and change the world.